Paramedic 61, District 6. Stage 1 shooting. Skimmer Wayne, near Lakeland, Charles, 478 Tango. 378-1654. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Ceballero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. It's about that time, ladies and gentlemen, once again to go Inside EMS. This is the show that does bring you Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Sabalero. Thank you for joining us. It's always a pleasure to come and chat with you, share a little bit of knowledge. Hopefully, we're a little bit entertaining. But the guy that makes me entertaining is the one that I will introduce next, our good friend, Uncle Kelly Grayson. Uncle Kelly, how are you doing, sir? Oh, I'm fine, children. Y'all gather around the fire and let me tell you how it used to be in EMS. That's right. I can't (laughs) wait to hear this. Oh no, it's uh, it's it's been good, man. I'm, I'm, I've been handling some correspondence, trying to beat the beat the bushes for speakers for our state EMS conference coming up in June. And yeah, I'll come down there, man. Are you asking all these people, you haven't asked me to come down there yet. What's going well, on with that? The beating the bushes part of that means that you'll speak for free. <laughs> Am, okay. I, am ha- I am happy to do that. I am happy to come down to Louisiana. It was that Biola Battery, isn't that? That's the only yeah. town I know in Louisiana. And uh, that was on Forrest Gump, wasn't it? By, Everything by, I know about Louisiana is from Forrest Gump. So but that was it. Alabama, man. Oh, was it? Yeah. Oh, by, never mind by, then. Yeah, See, Alabama. I don't know anything then about Louisiana. See, I know obviously. everything there is. <laughs> yeah, but I'm happy to I'm happy to come down and chat with your folks and uh, you, you know give them a show. Come down. You should come down and do one of the one of your leadership your NAEMT leadership workshops as a precon. I'm happy to. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll talk offline, man. We'll get that yep. going for your folks. All right. So you know, people didn't come here to hear about our travel plan. So let's go ahead and do some in the news. And I'm going to give you the first story. What do you got for us? Oh man, there's a there's an article for today about the Ferguson riots by some funny looking character named Sebolero. Kid me, is this really uh, your first news story? Yeah, it's my first news story, but I, but I, I think it, it speaks to uh, pretty fundamental tenets of leadership. It's you know uh, you guys been going through the uh, you know uh, on the forefront of the, the Ferguson riots and and having to deal with that very challenging situations for any EMS uh, system. And you know, gotten some recognition for for doing it right and for handling the handling the stress of it and and the, the response very well. And your you know your article talks about your your crisis vision statement was the foundation for successful leadership. And you know, I, I think that's that's probably the most important thing you can do in, in any major uh, event is is get your people on the same page. Let, what are our goals here? What do we want to do? And and let's go forth and do them. Too much, too many mistakes are made. Too many bad things happen when you have to solve problems uh, ad hoc without knowing what the end goal should be. And I think it's a, uh, I think it's a pretty good article you wrote, man, about the, you know, delivering the very best patient care, but take care of yourself first. The the goal is to go home at the end of the shift and be leaders in our community and, and examples and and examples for the world about how EMS should handle these these sorts of things, man. So I, I wanted to give you a pat on the back about that. Well, th- you know, thank you very much. I mean, it's nice. You know, one of the things that when you have an event, uh, you know, uh, certainly of this magnitude, no one expected, you know, our, our vision statement, and I'm one of those leaders that, you know, bring people towards the vision, it is based on giving outstanding patient care as being leaders in our community and role models for our career field. As we realized that this event was going to, it was captured on every single news, you know, channel that there was. One of the things that ran through my mind and that I shared with the leadership team and the workforce was our career field is watching us. And, Mm -hmm. 
you see a lot of times, and Kelly, you and I have chatted about the bonehead things some that happens in EMS that gives EMS a black eye. Mm-hmm. And I pointed those things out to our workforce to say, how do you want to be recognized in this event? And we're going to do it better and cleaner. So we not only give pride to our citizens that we serve and to our organization, but we're going to give our, our career field something to be proud of as well. And I got to tell you, you know, as a leader, you know, it's my job to inspire and it's my job to motivate the workforce. But during this event, they were my inspiration and they were my motivation. And I was very proud of those folks. Yep. And, and that attitude is, is what makes a good leader. So, uh, again, congrats on that, man. So what have, what have you got for a, a new story for us? You know, it seems that we always talk about the same things, but, you know, it it makes good news. So I'm going to be excited to chat about it. Ex-chief charged with sex crimes also committed Medicare fraud. So it wasn't bad enough that he had a sex crime allegation, but he also committed Medicare fraud. But the byline is EMS providers say that they were told to bill Medicare at the highest rate possible by a former chief arrested for allegedly plotting to have sex with a teenage girl. And this comes out of Everett, Washington. And, you know, Kelly, it it amazes me that we talk about these events as they occur, and you would think that people would stop doing them. You're going to get caught. You know, but it just amazes me that people are still trying to get away with things that they know that they're going to get caught of. And, you know, this is just a, a double, this is just a double whammy, alleged sex crime and committing Medicare fraud. What's more egregious, you know, from a personal standpoint, you know, uh, the the sex crime, obviously. Of course um, it is. Of course but, it is. But for the harm that it does our profession, the the Medicare fraud ranks right on up there. You know, we're, you know, used to be, uh, or for for ever since I've been in EMS, ambulance Medicare fraud has been one of their, you know, top priorities. We're uh, us and and the folks that 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 hawk uh, durable medical equipment are probably some of the biggest fraudsters uh, in of the Medicare system. And it's something that we need to stamp out. It gives our profession a black eye. And if these guys were to look, you know, the, the audit's ongoing. Uh, we don't have an idea yet. But this does not spell good things for Everett Fire Department. Because, you know, if you've ever undergone an, an audit or, or familiar with how that process goes, you know, the, all they have to do, the burden of proof is on, on you to prove that you weren't committing fraud, not on, on them to prove that you were. All they have to do is come in and, and pull a, a select uh, a selection of your EPCRs and see if they were properly billed, and, and if they find discrepancies or if they find uh, things that they can contest, you know, and say 50% of them from the month of January, well, they can go back years and say, okay, give us 50% of the Medicare dollars we paid you back right. until, until you can prove that all of these things, that, that all these charges were legitimate. So they can they can cherry pick it's a very small sample size, and then extrapolate from that and and just basically put you out of business. This is no, this is nothing to uh, to scoff at. And hopefully the folks in Everett, Washington, the fire department can uh, weather this scandal. You know, it, it highlights our first news story about your leadership during the Ferguson riots. You know, strong leadership is important and bad leadership can bring down a department let's hope it doesn't happen in every fire department's case i agree yeah well on the on the subject of emts and firefighters behaving badly we have uh the story out of philly that's been in the news um philadelphia fire department employees seven of them facing discipline after an investigation into sex between male firefighters and a female paramedic 
the union president said that all the sex was consensual, how it happened outside the firehouse, although uh, Inspector General's office is saying that at least one sexual encounter happened inside the firehouse. And accused are two battalion chiefs, two firefighters, a captain and a lieutenant. The union president says that the paramedic was coerced into filing a complaint. She didn't initially want to file a complaint. They gave her a choice of either filing the complaint or signing a document denying any and all wrongdoing uh, on everyone's part, saying that nothing inappropriate had occurred. So they forced her hand and she, she uh, filed a complaint. It's just, you know, this is, this is 2015. We don't, you know, goof off, have sex, goof around and, and engage in inappropriate behavior in our workplace. How, how hard is it to understand that you don't crap where you eat? You know, and, and I, 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 when I saw this come out, I, I, was, I raised an eyebrow to it. You know, they're talking about, is the only challenge here the fact that there was one alleged inappropriate encounter at a firehouse? Is this why we're, we're after this story? I mean, because it seems like regardless of how many partners somebody wants to have, you know, that's not news. So I really don't understand why this has come out to be, you know, you know, a slam in the, you know, the great work that they do down there in Philly. Uh, and I don't understand the story. And maybe you can enlighten me a little bit. Is it just the fact of one encounter that happened at work? No, I think that she alleged some, some uh, you know, uh, sexual harassment and, and uh, those sort of allegations in a, a hostile work environment. Um, but oh, So really it was a harassment thing. Yeah, uh, and, and, you know, the sex was part of it. But the, the thing is, is, you know, I don't want to get into victim shaming here, you know, and this, this sort of thing goes on in fire departments and ambulance stations. And, and we as, as, you know, males of the species uh, are, are, you know, have some things to answer for, for, for how we treat women in our career field. Uh, historically, we don't have a real good track record on that, although I'd like to think that we're much more enlightened and, and are better at it now. But this sort of thing still gives us a black eye. But without getting into victim shaming here, it just, you know, you had sex with seven, seven people at the firehouse. At what point, at which sexual encounter did it become harassment? You know, you know what I'm saying here? I can, I can see uh, harassment and, and a, a hostile work environment if you, were, if you were coerced into having sex with your superiors for, you know, to keep your job or to, to uh, for promotional opportunities, you know, that they were holding that over your head. But if you're, if you're sleeping with, with uh, co-workers who, who can't, uh, help your and don't hold the really? power. They can't help your career. <laughs> you know, they can't so that's okay if they can help no, your career. No, no, that, no, that's, is that what you're saying? No, that's not what I'm saying. What oh I'm my God! Is, you just—I you know, feel so dirty. I've got to take a shower now. No, well, usually these kind of things play out where it was a, a superior and a subordinate, and the superior, most of the times a male, is is using his position of authority to basically sexually harass, rape, whatever you want to call it, however the allegations play out, a female subordinate. Well, in this case, well, there were some some male superiors, the battalion chiefs, maybe even the captain and the lieutenant, depending on her rank. But what about the two firefighters? What about the, the two firefighters who were who were presumably equal in rank to her and, and held no, no power over her disciplinary or, or job security-wise? You know, I'm not saying that she is she's to blame in the encounter but at some point that number of people doesn't help your case anymore 
it starts to make you look uh, portray you in a bad light as the the uh, the female complainant here and and you know uh, I just don't know what to think. Yeah, uh, I gotta get I, you know we gotta get away from this story, man. Like I said, I'm gonna I just feel dirty. I gotta take a shower now. It but gives us a bad uh, a bad paints EMS in a bad light. It does. Now, regardless of that, you you are absolutely right that you know we've got to stop this from happening. You know you know we we debate all the time. Is EMS a career field? Is EMS a stepping stone? When are we going to be? When are we going to be taken seriously as a as a, a career field? You know these stories don't help us. You know these stories give us this black eye that we lose public trust when this happens. I mean, our job is based on the fact of going into somebody's home, building a rapport, letting them know we're going to deliver the highest quality of patient care. We're going to take care of their loved ones. They don't need to worry about things. Then the community reads things like this in the newspaper, and do they really want these folks to, to call these folks when they need help? Yeah. And we've got we've to remember that, that, you know, EMS is one of those jobs, Kelly, and I'm not going to say anything that's, that's, you know, out of line. You know, we, we say things we shouldn't say. We do things yeah. we shouldn't do. And we've always said that that's a defense mechanism, or, or so we want to claim but we've got to stop that, and we've got to yeah. we've got to be professional in what we do. We've got to treat the folks who come and work with us with respect. We've got to treat our female partners with respect, and we have to move into the twenty first century of knowing that it's not a defense mechanism. Yeah, this this is not the nineteen seventies, and this is not Mother Judge and Speed anymore. Our, our profession has matured beyond that. If if. Uh, if in fact we were ever immature enough where that sort of thing was condoned it certainly isn't now in in 2015 time to stop and, and it's not like philly fire doesn't already have some black eyes from you know response times and, and that sort of thing in the past uh, they need good press here not the kind of press they're getting so right well let's go ahead yeah. and we'll transition let's go ahead and move into our clinical issue and i'm really excited to kind of talk about this and you know you and i we kind of spend some time and we kind of you know talk about different issues that we can chat about and this one i'm going to talk about my five-year plan as the chief of the department in- is, is this the one where your legion of flying monkeys completes your quest for world domination and only those who suck up to you will be on the protected rolls no that is my personal oh. personal oh, five-year I gotcha. plan That's i right. got you so, and I, you let it out of the bag. Someone's going to copy it before me. But we felt that this would be a good topic to, to talk about. And I want to set this up for you. So I became the chief in May of 2010. What I did over the, the first three years was I wanted the folks in the department who were EMTs to become paramedic level. And I think I, I have to check my numbers, but I think, you know, in those first three years, there were about 20 EMTs that became paramedics. And we supported that process. And systematically, I was making an all-ALS system. And it's not because I don't like the EMT. I mean, some of the best partners I had were EMTs, and they certainly kept my butt out of a lot of trouble. But I systematically tried to make an all-ALS system. And now we come to the day of 2015, and we probably have 100 paramedics, and we have probably 7 EMTs that are left. But now, Kelly, you and I have talked about mobile integrated healthcare, and we've talked about community paramedicine. And I got to tell you, man, I think I made a mistake. Let me tell you what I I would like to do in the next five years. I would like to revert my system to all BLS system. Have two EMTs on the truck running calls with ALS intercept. Of course, to do that, and, and, you know, the the majority of the paramedics that we have in the organization, of course, would become uh, advanced practice paramedics, mobile integrated healthcare paramedics, and they would be out in the community delivering care. 
they would be working in the hospital with high-risk readmissions. They'd be working to take length of stay home, you know, if we could reduce our length of stay by bringing those folks home. But now when we think about the 911 calls, if we have a bunch of paramedics who are in the community and they're delivering care and they're taking care of issues that don't need to go to the hospital for, if we take time and if we educate our EMTs and give them basic cardiology knowledge, give them the ability to give certain medications, again, you know, we could do things under our medical director's license, have a couple of um, paramedics in command vehicles who are chase vehicles for ALS Intercept. I got to tell you, man, I think that that's the wave of our future, and that's what I'm setting up as our plan. Well, you know, the, they say that the, the true test of any man's intelligence is the degree to which he agrees with you. Uh, and, and by that token, uh, on this particular subject, you're a friggin' genius, because I've said You've heard thing. it, ladies and gentlemen. Greg <laughs> well, Freeze, said, if you're listening, I want you to go ahead and write that down, that he the, said it, and he'll never be able to go back on that. The, the caveat was on this particular subject. <laughs> Um, I see. You but, give it with one hand, you take yeah, it away with right. the other. That's right. It's carrot and a stick. But I agree with you wholeheartedly. I have said for years that that U.S. the United States EMS system. Our problem is not that we don't have enough paramedics; it's that we have too much. We have too much EMS, not enough. We do everything everything that we do about system deployment and and uh, personnel utilization is wrong. Um, now, with the with the caveat that no, you know, EMS is, is at its heart a local issue, and and there is no one size fits all solution. I really think that a tiered response system with a with a small cadre of very talented, very exquisitely well trained paramedics, and a large cadre of of EMTs who are handling the bulk of the patient care is the most efficient system. You can feel them. Uh, at a lower cost, you can train them uh, at a lower cost. They are well capable with with good training of handling the vast majority of medical calls uh, and trauma calls. Uh, and you don't have the problem with skill rust out and 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 skill degradation. You know that they're Volusia County, Florida, for example, perfect example of the dangers of uh, skill degradation and rust out. You know you can't swing a dead cat there without hitting. A paramedic on a scene. Way too many paramedics and as a result they were dividing the number of intubations they got uh, among this large pool and none of the paramedics were intubating enough to, re- to retain any proficiency. They had a all ALS fire first response and then dual paramedic staff transport units and their first pass success rate at endotracheal intubation for the ALS fire medics was like 40 something percent. 40-something percent, man. I mean, they missed more than half of their tubes. Right. And, and then, now, the, the ALS, uh, dual ALS transfer uh, transport units had a much better uh, success rate in endotracheal intubation. Theirs was 80-something percent, uh, twice as good as the, the fire first responder uh, medics. Uh, but that's only good in, this, you know, in the same sense that a crap sandwich is good if you put enough mustard on it. I don't know, um, that, I don't know that I'm eating that. You know, that's, that, that's damning with, file that under damning with faint praise. And it was simply because they they had way too many paramedics to, to justify right. or to divide the ALS skills among them. Now, you contrast that with, with a 
situ uh, a system like, say, Boston EMS, which is a tiered response system, right. uh, the vast majority of calls are handled by, you know, EMT basic units, and, and a lot of these guys are paramedic trained, but in Boston system, paramedic is a is a promotional position, so right. many of them are paramedics and they're working as basics until a paramedic slot opens up. But what they wind up with is great, great seed corn. Their basics are strong because they're not just fetching equipment. They're actually rendering the bulk of patient care. And when the time comes for them to, to move up to paramedic, they're well prepared. There's none of this zero to hero stuff that, that people complain about. And, right. um, you know, and, and their paramedics on all the metrics that we, we look at, you know, their, the accuracy, their EKG interpretation, their, their indebate intratracheal intubation success rates and, and those so on and so forth those things are on a par with the emergency department physicians that they're handing the patients off to every bit as good as those because when they're running an ALS when they're running a call they're running ALS procedures right that's you know, all they do and I think that one of the things that that we need to think about is the, the calls that we see you mm -hmm. know the opal study that was done in Canada you know a few years back quite a few years back now proved that we don't need to have ALS professionals running a lot yeah. of these calls, the majority yeah. of these calls. Now, I don't know that I sit there and believe that, you know, that's that's true. That study is really, you know, I, I'm not going to say that the study is not true, but I'm going to say that I think that there needs to be ALS. But I, I think that when we talk about EMT basic, I, I don't think we give our EMT partners justice by saying they're just basics. Mm -hmm. It's a lot more than that. And how much more could they do? If we gave them the opportunity to do that. And, and here's my plan as well, Kelly. So we talked a little bit about how we would tier the system and how we would make that work. But with that as well, it would be plan to teach EMT course so allow people to come in to become EMTs and train them in the skill that they're going to utilize. Second, assist them with going to paramedic school as a promotion. Third, I'm having discussions with some of the universities to build a bridge program from paramedic to nurse or paramedic to PA. That one may be a little bit more difficult. But after their paramedics, help them become critical care paramedics, help them become advanced practice mobile integrated paramedics if they choose to do so to become a nurse with a bridge program. And now I've, we've created a succession plan for mm -hmm. people to stay in EMS That's right. and make it a career. Because i got to tell you, when we talk about mobile integrated health care, community paramedicine, it, it isn't just going to be paramedics. We're looking now to hire PAs to be part of this system so we can send PAs out into the field. You know, they can work with our medical director's license. They can bill for the services that we're doing. And it's only a matter of time before the paramedics are able to bill for those services. But, you know, your community, your community uh, health program is going to include advanced practice paramedics, yep. could involve DMTs, could involve nursing, could involve you know, PAs, nurse practitioners. I mean, we're really writing this history as we look at it. Yeah. But I think as we change a system, we don't just leave it at that. Now we've got to invest in their professional development and bring them to the next level. So now they have a career to feed their families and they're not making nine bucks an hour anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to require a multitude. You know, the future is going to uh, require a multi multidisciplinary approach to healthcare.
uh, we, we're not going to be able to have uh, little fiefdoms where EMS operates separately from the hospital environment and uh, the ED operates separately from, uh, you know, the med surge floors and the ICU and so on and, and follow up and aftercare and rehab and that sort of thing. You're going to have to have system-wide integration of, of the services we provide. But, you know, the first step is, is, is training, training the, the people who contact them first to, to know what to look for and to and to provide proper care and I don't think an all ALS system uh, or an ALS slash BLS uh, staff truck is the way to go. That's the way I worked my entire career. Uh, some of the very best care practitioners I've ever uh, I've ever uh, met are EMT basics. However, they they knew they were strong at, at what they did and and uh, the vast majority of care we rendered uh, on scene was, was BLS care. You know, I've uh, we talk about uh, you were talking about the the mobile integrated health that brings to mind another another thing I've always wondered at is uh, I think we do paramedic intercepts and and uh, resource deployment personnel deployment uh, totally backwards. You know, you go to any major city and look at the EMS systems there, and, and what kind of patch are the peak guys on those trucks wearing? Is this a trick question? <laughs> They're wearing paramedic patches. Where, where the in an environment where the value of ALS care is, you know, diluted by the sheer fact that you know you're close to a hospital. Quite often, a diesel bolus is just as effective as as whatever fluid or medication you're going to give. We have in in our urban centers, we have clusters of, of paramedics all fighting for ALS procedures among them, and then out in the sticks. In the rural communities, in the suburban communities, we have volunteer EMTs who are struggling to even get patient contacts. It's just a very inefficient system. What I think we should do is, is the city should be staffed with uh, BLS transport ambulances, and you should have mobile integrated health paramedics, community paramedics, out in these outlying communities, practicing, you know, practicing their craft, running a clinic, uh, a clinic, uh, doing. Uh, home visits, that sort of thing. Rather than an ALS intercept, you call for a BLS intercept. Right. If there's an emergency in your town, the paramedics go run it, decide if the patient needs BLS care or if they need to accompany the uh, BLS transport ambulance into the city, and you go with them. Right. You know, and then they come back. Uh, I think that would be a more efficient utilization of our resources, and it puts the puts the ALS providers where they'll do the most good, and the BLS providers where they'll get the most calls and get the most experience. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a big paradigm shift. You know, we, we bring people into EMS, you know, touting the 10% of calls we run with lights and sirens and, you know, traumas and gunshots and stabbings and hangings. And, and you know as well as I do that those calls are very few and far few between, and far even in a busy system. And I think that we have to really kind of get to the crux of what we're going to be doing and what the future looks like. You know, you talk about that paramedics should be running clinics. You know, you talk about the work that they're doing in Ada County in Idaho mm -hmm. and the work that they're doing at Eagle County in Colorado. Right. They're already setting the standards for others to follow when it comes to this. You know, the, the, the New England Journal of Medicine said by the year 2025, they're going to be short 274,000 primary care physicians. And yep. who's going to take care of all these baby boomers that are retiring at 10,000 a day? Well, I've got an answer for you here, and it, it, it's all our ALS providers who are going to work under their medical director's license and deliver the highest quality of community care that they can. Mm -hmm. And, oh, by the way, sometimes we may have to run ambulance calls. That's right. You know, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to require a huge uh, seismic shift 
in our in our thinking and our uh, our reimbursement schedule and everything else. But it's a shift we need to make. It's where we need to go. We need to get away from this fee for transport model where we're, you know, where CMS looks at the contribution of EMS as mainly transport with maybe a pittance for a medical procedure here and there. Um, but mainly we pay you to take people to the hospital, which is the most inefficient means of, of, <laughs> of getting care that I can, I can think of. Right. Uh, far better to keep them out of the hospital and, and treat them at home, minimize cost, uh, and, and ease the burden on the system. Right. Uh, and it's better for the patients as well. That's the key right there is we need to take the sick guy into account and we need to think about what's best for them. But, you know, Kelly, usually I end the segment you know, by saying, well, Kelly, it looks like we have a clinical issue. I'm not going to say this this time. I'm going to say, you know what, Kelly? It looks like we have a wave of the future. Yep. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, I think it is. I think community uh, paramedicine mobile integrated health is, is taking off and building a groundswell support. And, and it won't be long before we reach critical mass uh, and and the, the people that hold the purse strings will start to look at, at how well we manage these, these patients uh, and start reimbursing us accordingly. And I think that's going to totally broaden the scope of EMS. Uh, as a matter of fact, it probably move us, take the E out of EMS, and we'll just be out of hospital medical services of some kind uh, with emergencies being a small, small portion of it. I'm eager for the future, man. It's just right around the corner. I'd like to be a part of it. As always, you've heard Chris and I bloviate about it, but we'd like to know what you think. What's the word? Bloviate? (laughs) Bloviate. All right, go on. (laughs) You've heard Chris and I bloviate about the subject, but we'd like to hear what you think. So email us at the show at ems1.com. Give us your concerns, comments, questions, suggestions. And as always, I'm Kelly Grayson, and for myself and co-host Chris Civilero, thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you next week on Inside EMS.